What's up? You're listening to Fork the Product. I'm your host, Nick Casares. And I'm your other host, Zach Cohen. Fork the Product is a podcast that explores the intersection of blockchain, product, and user experience. We interview founders and builders to understand how they're approaching problems in the blockchain space. The show is brought to you in part by Polyant Labs. Nick, can you talk for a second about Polyant? Sure. Polyant is a blockchain-focused, early-stage startup incubator. We're headquartered in Phoenix, Arizona. And I say we're because in my other life, I'm the director of product for Polyant. Long story short, we help founders bring their ideas to life by providing them with early-stage funding, mentoring, and support with things like development, design, and marketing services. If you're an entrepreneur or developer and you have a vision that you'd like to discuss with Polyant, visit our website at polyant.io. That's P-O-L-Y-I-E-N-T dot I-O for more information. Great. Thanks for your support, Polyant. Now on to today's show. In this episode, we speak with John Crane, co-founder and CEO of SuperRare. John has an extensive background in product consulting for Fortune 500s like Coca-Cola and AT&T before taking the leap and working on products in the e-commerce and crypto space. SuperRare is a marketplace to collect and trade unique single edition digital artworks. Each artwork is authentically created by an artist in the network and tokenized as a crypto collectible digital item that anyone can own and trade. We speak with John about how SuperRare has been able to create a community of not only collectors, but also forward-thinking creators. Enjoy. Welcome back, everyone, to Season 2 of Fork the Product. Today, we are speaking with John Crane of SuperRare. John, thanks so much for joining us on the show. Nick, thanks so much for having me. Excited to be here. Awesome. Well, why don't we dig in? Can you tell our listeners a little bit about SuperRare? Give us the high-level overview. Sure. So SuperRare is a platform and marketplace for digital art. I like to you know, quickly think about it as uh, an Instagram meets Robin Hood. Love that. Awesome. Love that elevator pitch. That's a great X for Y. You're also involved in another company, Pixura. How does that connect to SuperRare? Sure. So uh, Pixura is kind of the, the general framework and tool set that we ended up building to support the token infrastructure for SuperRare. So we was actually in the process of building SuperRare, we realized we had to build a bunch of tools and we thought, um, you know, those tools would be other, useful to other people building NFT style projects. We'd love to hear a bit about your background and how'd you come to work on SuperRare? Uh, after school, about 10 years ago, I moved to New York and was working kind of in the digital product space, did some work with ad agencies and startups. And I think it was about 2013, 2014, kind of fell down the, the Bitcoin rabbit hole. And, you know, as I was following down the hole, Ethereum came along and I got super excited, you know, just about the different types of business models. Um, you know, people were talking about Web3. I was pretty excited about uh, building consumer apps around some of these new ideas. And so decided to kind of quit my day job and go full time on Ethereum and smart contracts. Um, so I spent about two years working with Consensus out in Bushwick. Um, and specifically on a, with a company called Block Apps. So I was a founding member there, and we built sort of scalable Ethereum infrastructure uh, for the enterprise. So there's a lot of working with Fortune 500s, trying to figure out you know, what they could do with smart contracts, what they should definitely not do with smart contracts. And you know, that was super fun and interesting, uh, but I was still pretty passionate about sort of like the consumer side of things. And so 
when the NFT standard came out, you know, CryptoKitties was a huge success. I kind of decided that that's what I wanted to focus on. So uh, I parted ways with Block Apps and uh, started working on Super Rare. Given you worked on Block Apps and, you know, in the enterprise world, I'm just kind of curious, what sort of lessons did you learn about blockchain and crypto during your time working on that? And, you know, what do you carry over now to Super Rare from that? You know, I think just one of the, the obvious things and, you know, one of the things Block Apps started with was, um, you know, they had pretty good... Uh, key management software. So as far as like the application layer was concerned, they were abstracting that away. And, you know, that was a huge, I think one of the reasons they've had success is like building sort of infrastructure tools like that to start with. And, you know, that's just something that stuck with me. The blockchain component's nice. It's, you know, I think it's good when users do want to know about it, but, you know, forcing them to deal with it too much is going to really hinder your ability to grow and scale uh, sort of like any type of product. So John, I want to take things back to super rare if we can. So you left block apps, you, uh, you're fascinated by crypto kitties, you're seeing a bunch of potential there. Was there a problem that you saw or maybe an opportunity that you saw? And I, I guess, give us the genesis story for super rare. So like I mentioned, you know, I was kind of, I was super excited about building new business models for the web, you know, concepts about, you know, personal data ownership, things like that. And, you know, so as I was thinking about my own, how do I use consumer apps, you know, what things I was interacting with, I was like, well, I use Instagram a lot and it's, you know, it's a great product. They have great distribution, but really they're extracting all the value. So, you know, all the creative individuals and people who use the platform create all the content, but really they're, you know, they're not the ones benefiting. It's, you know, sort of Facebook who really benefits and so I was trying to think about models where, um, you know, you could still have a fun consumer app, but instead of the platform extracting all the value, what if the participants kept the majority of the value? So that was kind of in the back of my mind. And actually, the first iteration of the product integrated with Instagram and let you sort of issue NFTs for uh, individual Instagram posts. Oh, interesting. Okay. And so what prompted the pivot away from that? Because I don't think that's part of the platform today, right? Uh, yeah, correct. It's not. Um, so we had some issues. You know, we were concerned about the legalese in their terms of service. Sure. Um, so that that was one thing we were concerned about. And just, um, you know, it was a little bit too, I think, too broad. You know, it wasn't quite focused enough. It was like a, a novel thing you could do. That was a lot of the feedback I got was like, this is kind of cool, but I'm not sure people really want to own this picture of brunch that I had last week. And we were getting lots of fun user feedback and, you know, at the same time, you know, being in New York, there's a pretty strong art scene. And so we were kind of talking with artists and, you know, saw an opportunity um, to kind of, you know, pivot the product a little bit and sort of really focus it in on the arts. You just mentioned, uh, you know, speaking with users. So you're speaking uh, our love language as product in UX yeah. guys. <laughs> <laughs> so we'd love to hear a little bit more about that discovery process with artists. What were those conversations like? What aspects were you trying to get underneath to to better understand if there was a there there? You know, we weren't the first product to think about, you know, tokenizing digital art. I think, um, you know, there's even back in like 2013, 2014, you had, you know, Rare Pepe's were a thing. Uh, there were guys, um, Eversoft, doing like BitCrystal stuff. They did some early like tokenization of game cards and stuff like that. So people had been kind of working in the space. Uh, but some of the feedback I got was just like, 
the tools were a little clunky or, you know, where they weren't exactly serving the purpose they wanted. And people kind of wanted to do it yourself tokenization platform to, you know, share the art. So that was kind of like, we had a lot of the tools already built. And so we were like, okay, we can just kind of reskin some of this stuff and um, sort of serve that use case a little better. And when you were speaking with any of the potential artists for the platform, I guess, did you come away with any surprising insights? I guess one of the things we were, you know, a little bit surprised about was the sort of willingness to, you know, use tools like MetaMask. I think at first we were like, okay, there's no way we can launch this with something like that in the app. Sure. And um, it, it turned out people were actually pretty willing to experiment and kind of jump through those hoops. So I think that was one of the things that I was pretty surprised with to start. I think this may be kind of self-evident, but we like to ask it nonetheless. How do you think decentralization makes the value proposition different or better than a centralized alternative? Yeah, um, yeah, very valid question. I think anyone building some sort of Web3 app or DAP should be asking that question before they start coding anything. But I really think it's sort of the ownership and value layer. So, you know, one of the main benefits is that on the platform, artists themselves are digitally signing the transactions when they mint the token. So their signatures imprinted in the token itself. We're not going in and, you know, minting these tokens for them. And, you know, the collectors truly own them. So, yeah, obviously we prefer if people are, you know, trading these uh, these assets in our marketplace. Um, but people truly own them and they can take them, you know, wherever they want. So if they're unhappy with things that we're building, you know, the token standards make it compatible with basically anything else that supports NFTs, which I think is pretty cool because it gives a lot of power back to the users. And, you know, that's kind of what we set out to do from the beginning. I'm pretty curious, actually, since you just brought up the, you know, they can take it anywhere else if they want. Have you observed or interacted with any users of Super Rare that have actually done that? Um, so not a whole lot. I think, you know, we're pretty focused on UX and try and build, you know, we're trying to build the best experience um, around these types of assets. But you can, you know, I think people love experimenting, sort of running various auctions, you know, using various token swap software. Um, so people definitely experiment with it. But I think in general, we've seen people mostly um, using them within the platform. Would love to just get a breakdown from you as to who you think your target market or target markets are um, and, you know, how you went about validating who those segments are and whether or not you have product market fit around those folks. Right now, the product is still pretty like the majority of power users and collectors in general are kind of people within the crypto space. Um, you know, so they're, they're sort of familiar with you know, Ethereum, they probably use some different DEX software, that type of thing. And, you know, they're also interested in supporting culture and the arts. So I think, you know, right now, the the value prop is still a little esoteric. You know, if you talk to my mom about why she might want to have a super rare token, um, the sort of like, you know, sovereign ownership is going to be, you know, a little bit out there. So right now, I think the the target market really is people who are excited about crypto, looking at different use cases and experimenting with things. And, you know, that's great. I think, you know, we're learning a lot from this sort of really targeted uh, set of collectors on the platform. Uh, but long-term, you know, we see this as like a, a great way to achieve some level of mass adoption. 
you know, art collecting is super fun. Looking at digital art is really uh, cool to do. And so I think as we, you know, continue down the road, um, we'll abstract away more of the blockchain components and open it up to a wider, wider audience. Yeah. And could you maybe paint a picture of what the typical persona is for, you know, the artists that are posting unique art to super rare? I'm always curious. And how are you going about doing user research with those folks? The types of artists who get excited about super rare, I think it's a, you know, it's pretty broad. There's not like, you know, one specific type. But uh, early on, we had some traction with uh, sort of like the GIF community within Tumblr. So there was a pretty strong uh, artist GIF community, you know, people creating original work. But it's it's tough because you don't really have anything that you can go take to market. So you like you put a lot of time and love and effort into creating something. Um, but then because of its digital nature and, you know, it's like oh, everything's free on the Internet. People just share it. Uh, there's nothing you can actually take to a gallery and go sell. And so with a tool set like we offer on SuperRare, you know, the artist can issue the token, sort of have it be the one of a kind, unique um, copy that you can trade and collect that's like certified by them. And then you now have something where value can accrue, uh, you know, people can hold in their wallet. And so uh, I think that's really been this like the early adopters were people who were spending a lot of time creating digital art, you know, interested in having some sort of revenue stream come from this art and saw this as an opportunity to, to do that. John, if I can go back to something you said just a few moments ago. So, you know, when you think about the vision for the market and you're thinking about a broader adoption where people outside of the crypto space might be interested in participating in digital art or owning it or creating it. To me, art outside of the visual experience, there's also the the visceral experience of reacting to a physical thing. So when you when you go to a gallery and you stand in front of a massive piece of artwork, you know there's an emotional reaction you have to the physical presence of that artwork. And I think that one of the things that isn't quite there yet with digital art is that sort of in the physical aspect of the experience. I'm curious. What are your thoughts or maybe predictions on where this market goes and the opportunity to blend the, the digital and the analog worlds together? You know, we've obviously seen you know, a lot of people just putting the art on screens in their homes and that sort of thing. But there's been also a lot of interesting stuff happening with you know people building VR worlds and showcasing their art, um, which I think, like you said, brings it a little bit closer together. Um, you know, you're still... You may be wearing a headset or looking in from the computer on your browser, but the fact that you can kind of explore these virtual galleries and museums and, you know, like find a new piece of art, it's a much more tactile experience than just, you know, scrolling through a feed on your phone. And so I think we're really seeing some early signs of like, oh, this is another way to experience this art. You know, it, it's just inherently a little bit more immersive than just like the flat screen. So sure. I think, yeah, so I think um, there's going to be a lot more sort of in that direction. A friend of mine has one of these TVs that look like paintings and he was posting photos and paintings and stuff up there. And it really is beautiful. So I'm personally, as just a consumer, I'm getting more and more excited about and interested in stuff like that, particularly when you merge in stuff like Super Rare and the crazy things that are going on with digital art. It's really exciting. Yeah, I think one of the fun things, too, is, you know, I've had, obviously, I tell anyone who will listen, and, you know, all my friends have looked at my digital art collection many times. 
Um, but when you like, when you connect it to like the social layer that we have in super rare and you know, like, you kind of talk through like, Oh, so-and-so owned it before I did. And then, you know, I ended up placing a few bids and they sold it to me. Like that story being sort of built into the art also helps give it sort of like another layer uh, that makes it a little bit more immersive than just um, it being just a digital file. Hmm, very interesting. Yeah, actually, since you were just referring to this social layer, can you maybe explain a little bit more like what actual product functionality you've developed? I mean, it sounds like that's almost like an emergent property that came out and wasn't necessarily intentional. So could you explain a little bit more about that? Yeah, early on, it was a hypothesis that we had that like the social layer would be super important. There's, you know, you can ask a lot of questions about like, okay, why does you know, why does somebody buy an Andy Warhol? You know, it's not just because they love his work, right? There's like you bragging rights, sort of social status, you know, that like uh, maybe some famous art collector owned it before you. And that's a big part of the art collecting experience. So that was a hunch we had. And so as the product was evolving, you know, we started to see more of this kind of like people trading in between like known collectors. And so we decided to double down on the social layer. And so we've added uh, sort of social profiles. So you have a profile just like you would on any other social platform. And then also doing things like allowing people to like art, save it for later and, you know, tracking views, that sort of thing. Yeah, that's that's really cool. I can really see that evolving into almost um, an activity in and of itself, like to be the tastemaker in the art world, you know, and to build up a reputation around the things that you're choosing to buy or to follow i think that's there's definitely something to that yeah it's pretty fascinating there were two this has happened um a couple times on super rare but you know artists love experimenting so we've had people post you know just like the sort of checkered black background of like a blank png or even just like completely white squares and you know just based on the reputation of the artist you see people bidding on these pieces of art which I always find super fascinating. And it's just like this sort of existential question of like, what is art? So that's been super fun to watch. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So speaking of hunches and product evolution, obviously Super Rare is targeting the early adopter right now, probably somebody who's connected to the crypto space somehow or is, you know, in the experimental art world. But I'm curious, you know, what are your thoughts on the go-to-market strategy to get this up and running in a, in a wider way? Can you tell us a little bit more about maybe your interactions with the community and building up more of a following for super rare? You know, I, like I said, long-term, I think there's, you know, sort of a broad market there for this, this type of work. And so a lot of what we've been doing is, you know, talking with forward thinking galleries who are sort of like pushing the edge with digital. There's a bunch of cool museums, some of them even exclusively focused on digital art. Um, so, you know, working with folks like that, It's an interesting time for the art world. So I think I was reading a paper recently and it was talking about saying that about 10% of current MFA students who are uh, fine art students are exclusively doing uh, digital work. And so this is a growing trend where we're seeing more and more experimentation and exploration in the space. And, you know, it's an interesting place to be in that, like I said before, you don't have a canvas or a sculpture that you're going to be taking to market. So I think... You know, there's a big opportunity for us to partner with institutions to help sort of grow this ecosystem. Yeah, no, that, that makes a ton of sense. As you've been talking about 
some of the different approaches and, you know, engaging artists in particular. I'm just curious to see what are some of the other exciting ideas that you all maybe haven't taken or put into Super Rare yet. And I'm thinking specifically of things like refungible tokens or technical innovations that may unlock new business models or way for artists to earn more from some of their art, or at least engage in their communities in different ways than just uh, ERC-721. Yeah, absolutely. You know, like, I'm super excited about the possibility of things like refungible tokens and, you know, fractional ownership. We're seeing, you know, there's products like uh, Otis. I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with it, but they're doing fractional ownership with... um, Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Otis is really cool. Yeah, Otis is great. They're doing lots of great work. And so... You know, unfortunately for us, fractional ownership is definitely, you know, the SEC is probably not super excited about, you know, experiments (laughs) we might run with that. So there's, you know, a lot of legal work to be done there, but I think it's super exciting. I think it's just a great way to let more fans engage with a piece of art, you know, like just by owning a fraction of it, you feel a little closer to it. You know, you you think about it in a different way. And so I think this is a great way to kind of expand the market lowering the price point and having more people sort of collectively own a piece of art is such a cool concept. You know, even like art at the museum, I feel like is sort of owned by the community anyway. And so it's, uh, I think it lends itself to that. So we're definitely experimenting there. You know, one of the things the platform does is it pays artists royalties when art resells in the secondary market. Oh, cool. Yeah. Which is great. You know, that's one of the fun things with uh, Ethereum and smart contracts is you can do, things like that. And it's pretty straightforward. So we're thinking about adding something like a similar type of functionality for um, gallerists and curators. I think, you know, they play a super important role. And so bringing them into the ecosystem is also going to, you know, help grow it a lot. Yeah. In fact, I think the reason I thought of that question is because I saw that you all do allow for, you know, revenue from secondary trades accruing back to the artist. Um, do you actually mind just going back quickly and defining a little bit since refungible tokens and concepts like that are perhaps not super mainstream, even for crypto enthusiasts? Yeah, fungibility is any type of it is not something most people are familiar with. But basically, uh, a ref- you know, non-fungible tokens are one of a kind and only one person can own them. Fungible tokens, they're uh, totally exchangeable. They're not unique and you can trade them one for one. And so the idea there is that if you gave a non-fungible token to something like a, you know, like a multi-sig smart contract or something like that, you could then issue sort of a, like another token that represented some fraction of ownership of that specific um, non-fungible token. So it's like uh, sort of taking it the other way. So you could think of it as like shares of ownership or something like that, but it opens up lots of, you know, interesting possibilities. For example, you could, you know, if people were collectively owning a piece of art and then it goes and sells and you might receive whatever portion of uh, profit, depending on how many shares of that token you held. So John, kind of an open-ended question next. What kind of challenges are you working through with your team? And this is pretty open-ended. So this could be with regard to building a business. This could be gaining adoption. This could be developing community. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah. So I think, you know, we touched on it a little bit and I think um, it's really kind of adding, you know, a contextual layer for interacting with and viewing the art. So I think, you know, a lot of the social features that we have, you know, we'd like to expand. I think a big part of 
sort of the magic of these type, this type of art is, um, you know, that it is directly issued by the artists. The collectors have a really close relationship uh, with those artists. And so I think it's expanding on that and proving that. And then also, you know, making sort of the experience and viewing of the art itself, uh, you know, kind of more tactile, like you discussed. So I think that's probably the big, the big challenge for us. And then secondary to that would be, you know, a lot of the other challenges that projects in the space are dealing with. And that's like, do we have a hosted wallet to make it easier for users? You know, what are the pros and cons there? And sort of improving that onboarding experience. Yeah. And we've definitely heard some of those similar challenges in in other conversations. Yeah. Even in the last couple of days. (laughs) Um, And yeah, one of those was just how, you know, there's such a proliferation of different wallets and different ways to access and just interact with the blockchain. And every project that's building on top of those has to design around those. And it's like a very splintered, fractured list of things. So how do you know what to prioritize? Sounds like quite the challenge. Yeah, it's interesting. We've experimented with some other options for easier onboarding. And it's, you know, it is helpful. But then at the same time, um, you know, people forget which wallet they used. And so then they have like, you know, their accounts are splintered across, you know, different, different solutions. So um, yeah, it's certainly a big challenge. I would love to switch gears a little bit and hear what is the breakdown of the team? Um, how has that evolved? And then we'll probably have a couple of follow-ups once we get an understanding of that. Sure. So there are three of us who founded the project. It's myself, my brother, Charles, who's our CTO, and then uh, Jonathan, who sort of leads our uh, product development. And we have a fourth team member, Zach, who's head of growth. Uh, he joined uh, just about a year ago. You know, we're all distributed. We met in Brooklyn and since then have kind of scattered across across the states mostly. And then uh, we also have some people, uh, a couple folks in LA, uh, a couple people in Brooklyn who are kind of, you know, serve as ambassadors and are helping us engage some of the bigger institutions and uh, players in the arts yeah, that's that's awesome. It sounds like you guys are pretty nimble. Um, one of the things that we've heard, uh, you know, particularly from smaller teams, but really any any team that's trying to get a lot done in a short amount of time, is that you just have to focus and prioritize, and, and that's you know one of the most important things you can do as a team. I'm curious from your perspective, John, for a small team that's trying to get a lot done, in aggregate, what do you think uh, are the critical skills that the team needs to be able to? to ship products. So, you know, even out, outside of the lines of role, but just as a team, what are the skill sets or the skills that you think really matter? Yeah, I, that's a super good question. I think for us, you know, um, sort of the path we've taken, like we really do try to sort of take a, you know, user first approach. So we do, we do lots of user research. Uh, you know, we kind of, we use that to help sort of guide the roadmap. You know, that said, uh, you know, people don't always exactly, you know, they don't, necessarily know how they want the product to work. So, um, you know, we, we try to balance that. So we get lots of feedback, you kind of listen to what people want and then try to prioritize it. So I think the ability to uh, sort of collect the feedback and then filter out noise and then prioritize, uh, you know, what's important for the vision of the product, I'd say is the most important thing to do. Uh, that said, that's always not very easy to do. So 
I think it's you know, sort of running that process and iterating on it. And when you build something that maybe isn't that useful, acknowledging it quickly and switching gears and, you know, try moving on to the next thing. Yeah, absolutely. Can you maybe dig in on that a little bit more? I'm curious, do you have any sort of formal or informal process for collecting and curating and, and synthesizing that feedback? Uh, yeah. So we sort of like high level, you know, we're super active. We have a telegram group where we're uh, chatting with everybody, you know, every day. And so anytime there's a feature request, we'll log it just to document things that people are asking for. And then we do conduct, you know, slightly more formal, uh, user interviews. We'll, we'll write up a script and, um, you know, we'll enter everything usually through like some like a Google form or something, usually there'll be some what, you know, we think maybe we want the product to go in a certain way. And so we'll gather feedback sort of related to uh, whatever that feature or direction is that we're thinking about to get a sense of, you know, how do collectors and artists feel about us adding a new feature like that. When you reach out for those user interviews, is there any top level criteria that you're using to filter out who you're speaking with? Um, yeah. So it, it, you know, it depends a little bit on, you know, what we're, trying to achieve but often it's like trying to get a broad sense so you know we'd like to talk to people who are power users people who are in the middle and then maybe people who are on the fringe just to get a sense of what the different sort of segments of people you know how they would respond or how they think they would respond anyway so we try to get like a broad sampling but often for the power users we really try to dig in and focus on you know how what they're thinking you know what are, what how are they feeling about things I wanted to go back to a topic that you mentioned before briefly. I think you mentioned that you have sort of ambassadors that you work with to help build up the sort of word of mouth around the project. Is is that a a formal role or is that just kind of informal for now? And I ask in the context of just being interested in the broader community development approaches that a lot of projects are taking and curious to hear also any thoughts you have in terms of how you do that now or what you're thinking about doing in the future to continue to cultivate that? So I guess it's like a, it is a formalized initiative that we have, but then the sort of like the individual ambassadors that we're working with are often just people who are super excited uh, sort of about the product and the mission. So, you know, we have specific things that we are, you know, really excited about and that we want to work on. Uh, but often the ambassadors are volunteers who are just kind of excited about the mission of, you know, what we're building. I would love to hear a bit about, you know, what funding you all have taken on to the extent that you're comfortable sharing that and what that process was like. You know, I, I bring that up because we hope that a lot of the listeners are folks that are curious either to jump into the crypto space or maybe are even on a crypto team and, you know, just trying to understand how to work through some of those challenges to secure funding. Yeah, definitely. So we, we, to start, we bootstrapped the project. We got our, got the MVP out the door without any funding. Uh, we did an accelerator program, uh, August last year. So just over a year ago. And then that also happened to coincide with the, you know, the dark depths of, uh, the crypto winter and it, fundraising was super challenging. It's an interesting space to be, a a team that's super focused on brand and product and a lot of the really good sort of consumer brand VCs are still pretty skeptical of crypto. And a lot of the crypto VCs are, you know, really interested in tokens and less so equity. And so uh, we decided to 
continue bootstrapping after uh, the accelerator. And so we're super focused on growth and product development. Um, and we'll probably continue to be, uh, you know, for the next six months or so. Yeah. And I think on the website, it says, you know, you all take a percentage fee of proceeds. If you could expand on what the business model is behind Super Rare and, um, you know, where you see that going in the future, that'd be great. Yeah. So uh, right now we have a, it's a 15% fee on uh, sort of primary market sales. So this is the, you know, the first time a piece of art sells and then uh, a 3% fee uh, for things that sell in the secondary market. The nice thing there is it's a pretty straightforward uh, marketplace business model. Moving forward, uh, you know, we're thinking about potentially having, you know, maybe more like some premium feature sets uh, for artists. You know, there's lots of interesting things you can do, uh, you know, with a token. You know, so we've been looking at some interesting models for DAOs and sort of toying with those ideas. But, you know, there's a lot of work to do there. So that's pretty far down the road. There's a couple of questions we like to ask to wrap things up. So I'll, I'll throw these out there. And again, these are pretty open-ended. So run with them whatever direction you'd like. Um, the first is, what's keeping you up at night about Super Rare? The second is, if you were to fast forward five years from now, how is the world different with Super Rare in it? Ooh, these, are, these are great questions. Yeah, I guess, you know, uh, what's keeping me up at night? I think, um, you know, just we're very excited and there's a lot of, you know, features and ways we could go with the product. And so I think I spend most of my time trying to narrow the scope and keep it simple. Um, You know, something we'd love to do is build a mobile app for the experience. So recently we've been spending a lot of time thinking about that. You know, what's a good way to roll it out? How does this affect the product? Um, so I think that's, that's keeping me up at night. And then five years from now, uh, you know, I think, you know, one of our missions is just to engage way more people in the arts and, uh, you know, grow the community of collectors around the world. And so I think five years from now, you'll see a lot more people, um, with specific artistic tastes. You know, I like to think about, you know, if you ask somebody what kind of music they like, you know, not, most people are not saying like, ah, just whatever is on the top 100. It's pretty good. And so with, you know, visual art, I think it is a little bit like that. You know, most people, the art they have in their house, they bought at Ikea. If you asked them what types of art they like, they wouldn't really have a language to articulate it. And so I think, you know, this type of art makes it way more accessible for a, a broader audience. And so I think five years from now, you'll see people with more personal opinions about the types of art they like and don't like. Awesome. I, I love that that vision and that perspective. John, thank you so much for coming on Fourth the Product. This has been an awesome conversation. Before we hang up here, is there anything that you want to share with our guests, places they can find you, things you want to plug? Yeah, go ahead and you know follow us on Twitter. We're super active there. Uh, super rare underscore co. Also, you know, join our Telegram, engage with us. We're super active. Um, so we love to we love to get feedback. We love when people join the community. So, you know, feel free to do that as well. And uh, yeah, Nick and Zach, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thanks, John. Thank you, John. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Fork the Product. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, or share this podcast with all your crypto friends. See you next time. Thank you.